really sweet to sing together, especially when we have an opportunity to sing in another language, to show the beauty of Christ and his church, how diverse yet one it is. It's a, a true honor to do that. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and then we'll search for the Savior in the book. Lord, I pray that you help us to be attentive to the fact that right now we have drawn near your throne and that you are in our midst, which is not something to be taken lightly, and that you in all of your holiness with humility and mercy are looking to people for, for people to care for. And so thank you for your holiness and also your mercy. Would you care for us through the preaching of your word and help us to love your word, to see it as a treasure and a prize because your word is the one who reveals your son. So spirit, we pray that you work. We love you and we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, one of the words that you might uh, have recognized uh, that we use often here in our church is uh, this word, this unique word called Reformed. Um, and so I want to just take a second to explain um, what we mean or what, what I mean when I use that term often like I do the word Reformed. In the, in the 16th century, uh, the predominant church in history in, in the world was the Roman Catholic Church. And, and what had happened was that there was this one man, a monk, named Martin Luther. And what Luther decided to do um, was expose or push back on what he believed to be some of the fundamental flaws in church, pract church practices during the time. In, 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 in relation to the, the Roman Catholic Church. So what Luther did uh, was uh, post 95 things wrong with the Catholic Church's beliefs and practices during this time on, uh, and, and nail those 95 things um, on, on the front doors of this church in Wittenberg, Germany. And the Roman Catholic Church um, responded to Luther and instead of reforming, ended up excommunicating him and kicking him out from the ministry. Uh, this is what began what is known to be the Protestant Reformation. And so anybody uh, within the, underneath the broader umbrella of the evangelical church, which includes Baptists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Lutherans, non-denoms, Pentecostals, etc., all have their origin in this point in history. When we say the word Reformed, this is the time period that we're speaking of. And one of um, the most significant flaws that Martin Luther sought to uh, combat or confront in the church was the idea in the Roman Catholic Church that during this time there were two classes of Christians, one being ordinary Christians and another being those who are truly spiritual. So ordinary Christians, in light of the Roman Catholic Church's view, were, were those um, who loved Jesus and sought to worship him but didn't work for the church. And the truly spiritual Christians 
or those who worked full-time for the church in the priesthood, in the monastery, or as a nun. These were the people in the ministry who were looked at and interpreted to be those on a spiritual higher level. Ordinary Christians could do normal work and good work, but they believed, it was believed, that they could never truly add up or measure up to the spiritual call. And so here's what the Reformers uh, did. They sought to use the scriptures to to dispute and and disprove this false dichotomy, the dichotomy that I just mentioned to you, which was one that separated the secular secular from the sacred. One of the ideas that the, the, the Reformers promoted was something called the priesthood of all believers, meaning that all lives and services rendered to God, whether that be someone um, who worked in the church or someone who didn't, were both equally as valuable and vital to the spread of the gospel, equally as holy. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that the reformers in light of Christ advocated for all of believers who believe in Jesus to be called holy, thus their work holy And because Jesus came as the great high priest, there no longer be a mediator that needed to stand between um, God and man. Jesus is the true mediator of the new covenant and has fulfilled the priestly role given to the church. And now through him we get bold and direct access to God. This morning, this is the idea that I like to expound upon. If you have a Bible or a cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open to Exodus chapter 28. You'll see there on the screens that I titled the sermon, Christ, the Final Priest and Sacrifice. This morning we're going to be in Exodus chapters 28 and 29. If you're taking notes, here are the three points I'd like to show you from the text. Number one, I'd like to show you Jesus or, or Christ the priest. Number two, I'd like to show you Christ the sacrifice. And number three, I'd like to show you Christ, the sure promise. Right now we're moving to point number one, Christ the priest. As we um, open up our study here, I'm just going to begin by reminding us of where we began last week, which was in chapters 25 through 27. And I told you last Sunday how these chapters, 25 all the way to chapter 31, are actually just one big section. And because it's one big section, this one big section would be helpful uh, to be known under one category and theme. I mentioned to you last week, but as a helpful reminder, here is a category and theme under this one large section. It's this. is that God desires to be with his people so that they might worship him. And in this desire and gift, he requires his people to pay proper and special attention to the way that he longs for it to happen so that it might be possible. We have now moved on from last week's study, which consisted of details and instructions from God given to his people and how they were to, if you remember, build the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was the place where God's literal presence was going to dwell. And now after moving past those chapters, we now have arrived at a section in this larger section that pertains to the priests who were to serve him there. Chapter 28, you're going to be thrilled by this, has to do with the priest's clothing. (laughs) Chapter 29 contains details for the rituals and ceremonies that they were to perform in their priestly roles. 
Both of these categories here, which involved their dress code and rituals, were to distinguish them from the rest of Israel in their calling as priests. And so the thing that God wanted his people to know here is that through these things, there is a distinction between his holy nature and and his people's nature, which is less than holy. In other words, priests in the Old Testament were given to the people of Israel so that God's people who were sinners might be upheld by chosen mediators and then able to come near to his presence and kept in relationship through them. So this is the first point that I want to show you here. I want to show you in this first point the significance behind the garments or the clothes of the priests. We'll begin chapter 28 verses 1 through 5 say this. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, God's saying this to Moses, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. And Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen." And so from here, all the way through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 40, are details for the priest's clothes. But, but, um, but there are two verses here in the verses that we just read, one in the beginning of the section and one at the end of the section that t- tell us why or for what purpose did the priest wear the garments. Look what verse 2 says. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Skipping to the end of the section, verse 40. Second one. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. For what? You shall make them for glory and for beauty. In other words, Aaron, the high priest and his sons who also served as priests, were to be dressed in a certain way as they prepared to enter into the presence of God. With what? With the proper attire. And that proper attire was for the purpose of standing before God in glory and in beauty. And so God, who is the most glorious and beautiful one, here we see requires those who enter into his presence to look and to be the same. And so in one sense, it is the material of the clothing that contributed to their glory and their beauty, You'll notice how the garments here are absolutely exquisite. They consist of the finest things. But the text goes on through these details to explain to us how it was not merely in the materials that were were, um, intertwined into the priest's clothing that made it significant. But it was also found in what and who they represented. In verses 6 through 14, we have a description of the ephod. If you don't know what an ephod is, um, that's okay, I had to look it up too. Um, it, was, it, it's, it was something like a sleeveless vest. 
And if you look there in verse 9, there were two stones that were to be set into the ephod. And on the ephod and on the stones, there were to be engraved uh, the names of the sons of Israel. Who were the sons of Israel? The sons of Israel were the 12 tribes that represented all the people of God. In other words, all the people of God, their names were to be worn by the priest and in verse 12, set on his shoulders. And so what we have here is Aaron, the high priest, wearing the ephod before the presence of God and the picture that we have or are given is one of him carrying Israel on his shoulders. Further in verses 15 through 30, there are instructions for the breast piece. In it, in the descri- uh, description, there's uh, two marble-like stones. You'll see them there in the text, Urim and Thummim. They were to be placed on Aaron's chest right in front of his heart. And uh, the meaning behind these two names of the stones, Urim and Thummim, were perfection and light. So most likely, these were symbols or references to the nature of God. And so each time Aaron stood in the presence of God to bear the names of God's people, he also had on himself across his chest a symbol or representation of the attributes of God. Further, if you look in verses 36 to 38, across his forehead was this golden plate which read the words, holy to the Lord. Gold in the Old Testament often signified or represented dignity and or purity. This plate across his forehead represented that he was to have these two things, God and God's people, at the forefront of his mind. This was his role as a covenant mediator to represent the people in front of God. And so, my friends, what what we have here is a description of the high priest having God on his heart, wearing um, the weight or burdens of God's people on his shoulders. And as a priest, his entire life was dedicated to the, the purity, presence, holiness, work, and service of God. Even down to the finest of details, there's this weird section in the text that um, pertains to his undergarments or his underwear. That's a weird thing to, to talk about um, pertaining to priests. You can laugh about that. Uh, why would they talk about the priest's undergarments? Because what was invisible to the eye concerning the covenant mediator was still substantial. Meaning that the covenant mediator, the priest, not only was his glory and beauty to be found in his outward appearance, but also his glory and beauty was to be found in his inward appearance, which no one could sense or see. That's what was required for him to stand between God and man. One commentator named J.A. Motyer said this, the priest was known before the Lord not by his own name but by the people's names. It was with their names that he entered into the most holy place. He carried them as one making himself responsible for securing their entrance into the Lord's presence. They can enter only because they rested on him. He on their part, bore all their burden and brought them with him because they were on his heart. And so what do we uh, do with all this, right? Where's the relevancy here, James? Well, the relevancy here is found in the beauty and glory within 
the high priestly role of Christ. Well, if Jesus came as the great high priest, wouldn't he have wore something beautiful, something glorious, like these priests of the Old Testament? Well, that's what's something that we would expect him to do. But the crazy thing is that when he comes, he does not come looking like that. Isaiah chapter 53 says this, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And there was nothing in his outward appearance that made him desirable. And so what was it that made Jesus, the great high priest, so beautiful and glorious? What was it that made him acceptable to God as he stood on his people's behalf? Are you ready for the answer? It was none other than the fact that he was the perfect and sinless son of God. And that he, being the son of God, did not come to us, God's people, clothed in gold or fine linen, but rather came in humility and lived among us and suffered as he served us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 says this, For Christ, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the Father. What was it that made Christ far more beautiful and acceptable to God than any other priest in the old covenant to ever live? It was not in his clothes or the beauty of his outward appearance, though he could have chosen to leave heaven and come to us as that. But rather, it was in his suffering, humility, upheld by his perfect, sinless righteousness as he lived sinlessly in full obedience before God. This was at the forefront of Christ's mind and heart. God the Father and God's people. Christ set aside his glory and beauty and instead became a servant. Romans 5 says he's the second Adam. The priest here in, in this chapter, in all of his garments, wearing all these materials, he, he was wearing these materials that actually made up, if you notice, the same thing that made up the curtain in the tabernacle. The curtain was the very thing that's kept separate God from his people. Um... But through Jesus, we have the walking temple, who is literally Emmanuel, God among us. Hebrews chapter 7 says that he was holy, undefiled, and kept separate from sinners. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that Christ knew no sin. At Jesus' birth announcement, do you remember what the angel said? The angel said, the one whom was to be born would be holy. Pilate and his wife before the cru crucifixion found no blame in him. The centurion at the foot of the cross at his crucifixion said this was a righteous man. Even the, de the, the, the demons, if, if you read the Gospels, called Jesus the, the Holy One of God. And so you see, in the Old Testament, God called sinners like Aaron and his sons to minister to sinners. And so it was sinners that entered into their priestly role, which indeed was the dilemma of the old covenant order. 
the fact that the law appointed men in their weakness to serve as priests. But Hebrews chapter 8 says this. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appointed a son who has been made perfect forever. What makes Jesus the ultimate high priest is that he did not need to wear earthly garments or earthly beauty to be accepted by the Father or to represent us, but rather he, Christ being the fully incarnate Son of God, was the one alone who came out of the water and the voice from above descended on him and said, this is the one with whom I'm well pleased. Christ was the one that the Father had loved perfectly in fellowship, eternal fellowship, before and after time. The Father, in all of his grace, brings us into this love by sending us his son. There's this old British theologian named Campbell Morgan. Campbell said something beautiful. He said this, Jesus was the first man to enter into the perfect light of heaven in the right of his own holiness. Heaven had never before received such a man. On the day of his ascension, there came into heaven a man who asked for no mercy. Pure and spotless, he came into the light of heaven and caused no shadow there. What what I'm trying to show us here, saints, is that God in all of his mercy remedied the dilemma of the old covenant priestly order by sending to us his sinless son, who was fully God and fully man, and being this, he, in his role, came to serve sinners. Can you see yet the beauty of Christ? I learned a lot about the Bible through rap music. I try to read through books. That doesn't work. I listen to rap music. I'll give you good songs if you want that. But one of my favorite hip-hop albums and one of the songs to describe this beauty says this. Forever before the creation or there was Satan, the Son was with the Spirit and the Father in glorification. Before worship of fine angels above, the Trinity was in a perfect triangle of love. And although this Lord should be worshipped, he volunteered to take upon himself the form of a servant. The Father commanded, yet asked him to come. So now let's examine the fashion that it was done. Let me ask you, if you seem confused with this, God passed through his own creature's uterus. I admit this is odd, yet the Bible can persuade me, an omnipotent God crying as a baby, how the Son of Man was born next to camels and donkeys. What an awesome feat to drop so deep and save his sheep. He didn't step down, he took a quantum leap. And I'm amazed how God, so infinite in wealth, put aside his fame and limited himself to time and space and eyes and legs. He died to save a violent race whose sin would bring him to hell. The promised Messiah didn't come in the honor of sire, the horror of sire, but humbly wearing the modest attire. Some people missed it to be specific, the legalistic, through their thought their king would be the richest. And we know we like commodities but the Passover of all riches chose a life of poverty. He dwelt with the lower class lowly men and those known as trash, those were his chosen kin. Wait, are you kidding me? Watch Jesus go low, wash Peter's toes. What great humility, the second person of the Trinity came down to rescue workers of iniquity. There is no question that he is God, G-O-D. 
But he laid aside the full expression of his deity and suffered the chasm that no words can fathom how God walked this earth which is cursed from Adam. I ask you again, can you see the, the, the beauty and glory of Jesus in his eternal mercy and humility as he came, the high priest, to suffer and serve God's people? How do we apply the first point? By believing, I'll invite you to believe. Amen? That was the first point. Christ the high priest, I'd like to show you now something that I believe is even greater and more beautiful than this, which is Christ the sacrifice. Well, as this section continues on, we now are encountering chapter 29, and within chapter 29, there's an introduction to the sacrificial system I mentioned to you before about the sinlessness of the priest, or I'm sorry, the sinfulness of the priest. That's what the sacrificial system was put into place for, so that that priests, sinful men, might be holy and consecrated for their holy work. And one of the major ways that this was done was through the taking of the life of an innocent animal on behalf of the sinner who was guilty. Um, That sounds harsh, and the reason why it sounds harsh is because it is harsh. Excuse me. Lizzie and I, um, we love the show Survivor. Uh, quick fun fact, Survivor is the, uh, the most famous show to ever air television. And so uh, that's cool. I feel cool that I like that. Um, anyways, if you watch the show Survivor, the whole setup is a, is a group of people put on an island to survive. They have minimal food and they have to play games to vote people out and, and survive. And oftentimes, if you watch the shows or the, or the, or the seasons, the rewards of the, the challenges are, are food. There's a couple times throughout the seasons that the people were rewarded with, uh, with chickens, little, little chickens, living chickens. Um, but as a byproduct of our culture and time, we, Lizzie and I, have seen over and over again how the people in their starvation after getting back to camp um, are hesitant to slay the chicken to enjoy chicken cutlets. Like, nobody has the guts or the umption to actually kill the animal. And the crazy thing is that the majority of the people are not vegetarians. They just get back to the, the island and, and now being confronted with the fact that, that blood has to be shed, nobody wants to do it. They see the significance of the slaying of the animal, the taking of a life. Um, in our time and culture, we're very removed from the reality of death. We go to the supermarket and we forget that those chickens that we eat had to be slain. But that's what occurs before we eat. Uh, death is the reality of life and sometimes it does us harm to avoid thinking about it or coming near to it. Um, death, the Bible says, is a product of sin a product of the fall and the curse that God placed on humanity in light of their rebellion against him. A death, according to the Bible, is the payment of sin. And and the thing that I want to show us about this sacrifice or sacrificial system is that God here, instead of being harsh, was actually being really merciful and kind. Found in this idea that God would let the life of his innocent and good, blameless animal be slain for sin, so that a guilty person who actually disturbs that wrath might be pardoned, passed over, and accepted. 
In chapter 29, God says to Moses these words. Now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of meeting. And so the bull here um, was a sin offering or a, a, a purification offering. To, to cleanse the place of worship from defilement that was a result of iniquity, iniquity that came from Aaron and his sons. And in the next um, um, portion of the text, if you look there in verses 15 through 18, as it relates to the ram, the same exact ritual took place. Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the animal before killing it. That animal was then sacrificed as a whole burnt offering to atone by paying a ransom for the sins of Aaron and his sons. The technical term for this, what we call is propitiation. It means to appease God. But in this practice, did you recognize the means of transference? How the priests lay their hands on the head of the bull as a means of identification? meaning that the death of the animal was accepted as the equivalent of the death of the individual so that their guilt due to sin, which demanded God's wrath, would be passed over and pardoned as it was transferred to the life of the innocent. And now that innocent life, that innocent animal, now being guilty, would face death on the perpetrator's behalf. This is how serious the holiness of God is when it comes to sin. Two, two times here in these two chapters, and one in the chapter following, there are three warnings for death. There are rules for the priest. Hey, priest, if you abide by my, statu my statutes um, and rituals, you will be pardoned. But if you don't, and you, and you, and you walk into my temple with sin un, um, uh, as defiled and unholy, you will be slain. One commentator said this, the need to be holy as God is holy is a recurring motif within the book of Exodus. As far as the whole nation of Israel is concerned, both the Passover and the covenant-making ceremony involve rituals that are designed to consecrate the Israelites as holy. The consecration of the priests provide a further illustration of how God makes people holy so that they may serve him in his presence. Without the week-long sacrificial system, Aaron could not wear on his forehead the golden plate that said, Holy to the Lord. Um, can you start to see and sense the necessity of the sinlessness of Christ? This is what God's holiness demands. Perfection. And the result of imperfection is death. And so this is what, my friends, is the good news it's that Jesus, the great high priest, it's found in what he, he does for us. So he not only sinlessly lives as our representative, but having us at the forefront of his mind and the will of the Father, he makes it his main mission to save us. He, Christ, leaves heaven, comes to earth, and seeing wretched, rebellious, openly rebellious sinners willingly lays down his life 
as the sin sacrifice and shed his righteous blood on sinners' behalf so that they might be washed clean. Jesus is the spotless lamb who was slain for us. This is why John the Baptist, when he saw Christ walking down to the water to to get baptized, yelled out to all the people and said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so if you think that God, as you consider the Old Testament, is some sort of hot-headed jerk, some sort of intolerable, hot-headed, arrogant jerk, I want you to think of again in light of what we're seeing here in this text because what we're seeing is none other than a holy God who is unable to know no sin, coming to sinners to, to, to grant for them mercy and create a pathway so that they would not be crushed but forgiven eternally. This is what God does in all of his holiness. He, he sees the sins of his people and from within him he bubbles with eager mercy so that his Creation would be restored to himself. This is the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. What was happening on the cross was that the second person of the Trinity, the holy begotten Son of God, was enduring the eternal wrath of God on humanity's part. And it pleased the Father to do this to crush his son. And the audacity of some people to presume upon the death of Christ. And the audacity for some people to use grace as an excuse to keep sinning secretly. And the audacity to flippantly talk about the gospel while inwardly not living a holy life. Woe to you. Woe to you. We're talking about the Son of God who was slain for sinners. In order to respond to this well, we must first stop to contemplate not just the cross, but who hung on the cross. This is the Son of God bearing the eternal wrath of the Father so to extend love and yet some Christians use it flippantly and live unholy saying that they love God with their mouth but inwardly are far from him. Oh, this is a warning. This is the Son of God. What is the right response to viewing the cross? It is to see the second person of the Trinity hanging and bleeding for you and for your sin and for your offenses and for your cold-heartedness and your apathy and your laziness and everything that you can fill in the blank with and then for you to repent and break over the mercy and love that God wants to change your life in person with. The right response to seeing the great sacrifice on the cross is brokenness. Do you see it yet? The humility and mercy of God as he bled and hung and died on a tree? But 
but for those who trust in Jesus and renounce their works as a means to gain, gaining God's acceptance or love, but repent and tell themselves, throw themselves fully on the, on the sun. There is an eternal chasm, an eternal brook, an overflowing flood of instant forgiveness and grace. For you do not any longer have to go to a confession box. For you any longer do not have to make any more sacrifices. For we as God's people do not have to interrogate our lives to see if we are following the Mosaic law for the Son of God, this perfect spotless lamb, as fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life on our behalf and fully appeased the wrath of God and now freely extends mercy to those who would praise him. And so we praise God for his glorious, glorious grace. You know the song? I think the song actually says it perfectly. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hebrews chapter 9, for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of it on defiled persons sanctified for the purification of flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from the dead and dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions commended under the first covenant. What I'm trying to say, my brothers and sisters, is that it is by your faith in the blood of Christ that you are eternally washed clean. If you're on the margins of the faith and you've been contemplating Christianity, but you want to experience God's love and a totally clean slate that will clean you eternally, I invite you to throw your life on the one who laid down his life for you. Amen? That was point number two, the sacrifice. We've seen Christ the high priest, Christ the sacrifice. Now I'd like to finish with Christ the short promise. This last section of the chapter does an amazing job to summarize the grace that it holds and the response that it calls for us to have. If you look there in verses 35 through 46, what God does is instruct Aaron and his sons to, to continue on in the sacrificial system in order to maintain acceptance in his presence. What he told the priest was that day in and, and day out, at the entrance of the tabernacle, a, a bull had to be slaughtered as a sin sacrifice, and along with this, two times a day, one in the morning and one in the evening, a lamb had to die. And then in verse 42, God says this, And it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be 
sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt. And I might dwell with them. I am the Lord their God. As we close, I just want to remind us all to you whose faith is in Christ Nothing more needs to be done for you to be accepted and promised the good gift of salvation through Jesus Christ because the once and for all sacrifice has indeed been made. Because of Jesus, here's what you get. All the promises here in this text, sealed, fulfilled, given to you freely, you get God's presence, you get God's grace, you get God's spirit, you get God's forgiveness, God's delight, and his full pleasure and promise to be your God. And so J.A. Mott, your commentary that I often read, said this, it was not therefore the Ark of the Covenant or even the law, which was central to the tabernacle for God's presence to dwell among his people, but rather, what was it? It was the triumph of mercy over wrath. The gospel is a triumph of mercy over wrath given to sinners. I'll finish our time by reading one last portion of text, Hebrews 9. If your heart is breaking and you need the Savior, cling to these words. Christ has entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, not to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is, at, uh, as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with our sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Oh, dear Christian, you who struggle over sin, I identify with you. But if your faith is in Jesus as God's covenant people, this is what we're waiting for. The Lamb of God who was slain, who's come to take away the sins of the world to finally and fully consummate his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your church. Father, thank you for your holiness. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you and all of your holiness showed your heart towards sinners by sending your son to bleed and die to take away their sin. Oh God, I pray this morning that you would take away sin. Oh God, I pray this morning that you would illuminate the gospel and set a flame to some who might be transformed by your grace. Prepare our hearts to eat and drink the supper, Lord. We need you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we have an